So some of you who are here haven't been here before. It's good to see some of you guys. Uh, this is the second part to what I got to preach. I think it's a month ago now. Time goes by pretty fast. So this is part two, but if you guys missed the last one, it's not going to be too, uh, won't be too big of a deal. This, this message will stand on its own. But if you guys weren't here last time, I'm just going to try to briefly do this because I said this would be rather short today. But uh, if you guys weren't here last week, we had a message entitled, O Kings Be Wise. Ripping that from Psalm 2, if anyone knows Psalm chapter 2. God's king who is the anointed is established on God's throne. And what is the nation's response? Rage. And so God's people hear of God telling of a decree. He said, listen, that's my son. I've installed him on my throne. He's to rule and to reign. And then David listening to God's decree then turns and he looks at the world in, in, a, in a kind of way and he says, O kings, be wise. Kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Or lest ye perish. You like the King James right there. Lest ye perish in the way. And the reason that we entitled that is this. In, here in Las Vegas, we have a, a Senate Judiciary uh, bill coming through that is a proposed amendment to the Nevada Constitution called SJR 8. And I have it written down here again. I'll read it for you guys one more time. So SJR 8 would be an amendment to our Constitution here in Nevada, and it would be uh, entitled such. It would say, quote, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by this state or any of its political subdivisions on account of race, color, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, age, disability, ancestry, or national origin. Close quote. Now I said to you guys last time, even as the church, we would hear that at first and we wouldn't think much of that. That just sounds like a pretty, t you know, you read a, you, you, you sign something and there's always a section in there about discrimination. Like we don't discriminate against this or, th or this. If you're employed here, we don't discriminate. You, you hear it all the time to where you just tune stuff like that out. But if you guys caught anything in there, what is actually being added in this section, which is not currently in Nevada state constitution, is this. That equality of the rights under the law will not be denied and thereby will be protected by the state for people with a certain sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. And so last time we really drew that out. I hope you understand the implications of that. This is the same thing that the federal government and the Equality Rights Act want to propose as well on a federal level. That federally, you cannot discriminate based upon somebody's preferred gender identity or sexual orientation. So it doesn't matter what you think you are, what you claim you are. As long as that's what you think you are, you cannot be discriminated against. And now we usually think, well, wouldn't that be a good thing? Like we don't want, like discrimination, you get the D word slapped on you and that's bad, right? It's like being called racist. Nobody wants to be called that. Nobody wants to be called, you discriminate against people. But you guys discriminate every single day. You do it. You discriminate on what you're going to wear, what you're not going to wear. Who you're going to be with, who you're not going to be with. You all discriminate on certain grounds. 
The question then becomes is, on what basis will you discriminate against certain things? And on what basis will you not discriminate against certain things? And Nevada, in doing this, is going to push forward something that opens the floodgate, the absolute floodgate, for people to be able to identify however they want with not only no repercussions, but for repercussions for you in your seats, you as Christians, and just the society at large. If somebody wants to claim to be a man and then and, and, and go and do something that men usually do, like in the military, they can go ahead and do that. Or if a man wants to claim to be a woman and go play in women's sports, she can go do that, as they would say, right? But we know that stuff is absurd. And we know that somebody simply trying to designate themselves however they want to sexually or gender, whatever they want to slap on themselves, doesn't actually mean anything. Ultimately, it doesn't. Somebody who wants to identify themselves as something, in reality, doesn't really matter. Because what we have to ask is, whose world do you live in? Whose world? You live in God's world. And who made you? God made you. And so what God says about you is reality. It's true. It's objective. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. And it doesn't matter how strongly you feel it. If God has made you a certain way, He's made you that way. And if He has caused you to be a certain way, you are that way. And like we said last time, friends, we are creatures in God's world. And God does not answer to us. We don't get to decide who we are. We simply get to respond to who we are. And as Psalm 2 puts it very well, we don't like who we are. We don't. We rebel against God. We rebel against His anointed. And we try to throw off what God has, has put upon us. And in here in Nevada, we are trying to pass it through legislation to claim in our own constitution that this would not only be good and right, but the consequences that are going to follow. Listen, there are going to be people who then are going to want to come into your church, our church, and say that they should be allowed into the church even though they practice something that we as Christians find abhorrent and wicked. And I'll tell you this, if it passes, they're going to win by the state. Now, Christian, now the question comes to you, what will you do? What are you going to do when the state comes after you? What will you do when there is no recourse with the law because the law allows for this kind of thing? This may sound like a slippery slope. And for some of you, this may sound like this is conspiracy theory, but it's not. This legally opens up the pathway for all sorts of chaos to ensue. But on a much bigger scale than just the Nevada State Constitution, friends, this is madness. It's absurd. God, in the beginning, created them what? Male and female. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Does your world correspond to God's truth? I'll tell you this, it does. You act like it. You act like it in the world. You assume it. Even the non-believer does. So friends, this is more than just bringing to your attention something that is proposed to our Constitution here in Nevada. This is flying in the face of God who created all things. And as we established in Colossians 1 last week, Jesus Christ Himself, for through whom and to whom and by whom all things were made. They're all made through Him for His glory. Anything that does not come into conformity with Jesus Christ is against Him. Jesus says that you are either for me or you are against me. 
There's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. You are for Him or you are against Him. And just because you don't walk around you know, on the street, I know some of you brothers preach out you know, in the open air, just because you're not the atheist with the sign that says, I hate God, doesn't mean that you don't despise God if you do not conform to how God has made you and the world and you have not responded to His Christ, to Jesus Christ. The last week was our call to say this. Our state senators, Senator uh, Cunizaro and Senator Spearman and all the Nevada legislatures who put together this joint resolution, SJR 8, they need to repent. They need to be wise, church. They do. Because he says, be wise, O kings. And he gives them the promise, if you would turn, blessed is the man who finds refuge in him. That's a true promise every single day. You turn unto Jesus Christ and you find true refuge in him. But if you don't, be warned. Jesus Christ's anger is quickly kindled. He is a righteous judge. And he comes to weed out the unrighteous in his world. And so the call went out to them, and it went out to us. Church, we have to be able to say that. They're not going to hear it unless you say it. Who's going to tell of the decree? Is it just going to happen? Is the decree of the Father to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, going to be known among the nations unless His subjects sitting there tell of His decree? We have to be able to say something, church. And that's what I charged you with last time as our, as our simple point of application. We need to know what the Bible has to say about these things. And then we have got to speak. We've got to open our mouth. But this one is the one I wanted to preach first. But we had to establish that first, right? Did, I had, did we not have to show, right? We don't want to assume things as Christians. Did we not want to show that in God's Word, God actually says those things? He created them male and female. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He actually does rule and reign. We had to establish those things. And then the call was really to kings. People in authority is what we mean when we say kings. We don't have kings here in America yet. We don't have kings. But we just mean people in authority. But church, I want you to hear what I've entitled this. Oh, church, be wise. Right? It, it does us no good to mouth a bunch of words to people that we think are ungodly and wicked and, and perverse and then do nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. So church, we need to hear what God has to say to us in His Word about then, okay, if this is what's coming down the pike, and it got voted on once in 2019, if it goes past a second vote in the committee, it will appear on your ballot in 2022. It will. And if you live here in Nevada, you know it's always going to swing. It's always going to swing uh, blue. It's always going to go that way. So the chances of this coming through are pretty likely. Now, what comes to us is, what ought we to do about it? Notice I put it that way. What ought we to do? Not, what should we do? What could we do? What might we do? Brethren, there's a real call for us. We ought to do something. If this is God's world, and you are God's, you have an obligation to speak on behalf of God. So church, what are we going to do? And what are some things that we can do? 
Now, I do want to, I don't usually do this with sermons, but I'm going to qualify it. I do not propose to tell you everything we can do from this. There will be, no doubt, a million questions from some of these texts. Sometimes Nick has asked them to me, and I don't like them because I don't know the answer. The, the point of this, as we, as we get into the weeds on this church, on what are things that the church should be based in doing, what should we be engaged in, I do want to admit to you up front, there are principles that are clear in Scripture, right? Don't murder. Very easy to understand. No ex, you know, not a lot of explanation required for that one. But let me throw something out there that's maybe a little bit more to home as far as what should you do. Children are murdered a couple blocks down here at the abortion clinic. Are we to go blow that place up? Should we bring guns next time we go down there Saturday? Should we stand in front of the door? Should we lock the place up? What should we do? What would be the most ethical, right, and moral thing to do in that situation? And friends, I tell you, that's not an easy question. Because if the reality is true that babies are murdered in that place, would you let that sink in? What if they were killing 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds? What if they were killing 4-year-olds in there? The world would act way different what goes on in that building if that were the case. But for some reason, when it comes to the unborn, we're able to just push it just a little bit further down the road. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm trying to put before you is the dilemma that we often face when it comes to how do we as Christians engage. And so what I'm trying to tell you is, listen, I think I have biblically based principles that God has given to us, church, to do. But I want us to be cautionary in this and to say, this doesn't mean we have the answer right off the top of our head for every situation that we're going to find ourselves in, including this one. While the principle is clear, this is wicked, this is wrong, SJR8 flies in the face of reality, and it flies in the face of God's Word. The question really to us, brethren, is then what ought to we do? And is it as simple as saying there's one thing that we ought to do? So we need to make our way through a couple of different things. And I've broken this up, three simple points. Okay, so first is, here's what I want to attack right off the bat, because this is usually where we all get stuck. Nine, nine out of ten of us, and I'm putting myself in there, excuses for not engaging. It does, us no, it does me no good to tell you to engage in something, but you, got, you are just front-loaded with an excuse that I'm just running into a brick wall with anything I'm telling you. If you don't actually believe you should engage or you have an excuse to not engage, they'll do me no good to tell you why you should engage. So excuses for not engaging. But then we need, just like we did last week, we need a basis for what we're saying. Because I'm also assuming if I tell you you ought to go do something, that's a moral obligation on your part to do something. You should ask, well, where do you get that from? How are you going to point to me and say I ought to do something about this? So we need to have a basis for our engagement. Because what if it's as simple as this? What if the Bible just simply said, you don't engage the world? I mean, how easy would that be? Okay, we just meet on Sundays, we sing songs, we talk about Jesus, we pray people get to heaven, that's it. I mean, that could be easy, right? I, would, I mean, some of you, I'm, I'm not going to lie, that would that'd be, that'd be very, it'd be, make a lot of stress come off my life. But brethren, what does the Bible actually say? And what's the basis then for why we engage in things? And then lastly, what are some of these practical steps? And I have a number of practical steps 
And church, what I really hope to get for you in this is that you see some of these practical steps and then we begin to work this out in the life of that our, our church, our own church. I mean, this is for us in our context. I want this for other churches. I want this for other Christians. But what I'm mostly concerned about is what we're going to do here. Because that's where I'm going to give account. And if you're here now, this is what you're currently going to give an account to. So what are some steps that we can take as Christians and establish them biblically for what we can begin to do to engage things like this? So, first one, let's, let's hit a few excuses. These aren't going to take very long. I have two that, for most, I heard that laugh. There's, there's two in here that uh, maybe for us, most of us in this room, if you've sat under the preaching here for a long time, maybe not even seem like excuses to you, but I think these are necessary excuses that we have to, we just, I, if there was any shadow or hint of it in this church, I want it completely gone. So here's two, and then the third one's going to hit home for us. First one is this. Often an excuse for people not engaging in things outside of their church context. You know, the culture, politics, whatever. Here's the first one. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Right? That's a Bible verse, right? That is. Go look in John. It's a Bible verse. Jesus, he, he, he looks and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's a true statement. But what Christians often do with that statement then is to say, Christ has no bearing upon this world at all, and so we don't have to worry about it. Yeah, SJR 8 is not a great bill. It may be even wicked, we could say. You know, the word slips, we say it's wicked, and we're like, oop, I said it. Like, it's bad, it's evil, but... Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Don't worry about it. Why stress yourself out about getting into something like this? We're waiting for the world to come. That's all we're waiting for. We want people to get there, so we'll give them a gospel. We'll get them there, and then forget the rest. Don't worry yourself about it. But brethren, that is an excuse. Because that is just taking Scripture and just mangling it and twisting it. Right? Because... Jesus says, my kingdom is not, is not of this world. My question to you is, what world is he talking about? Why do you assume it's this present creation world that you look at, this physical world? You know me, I'm hopefully tangible to you. You can see me, I can see you. Is he actually saying, my kingdom has no bearing upon the world that I made? Colossians 1, the one through whom all things were made to give him glory? Or is this just all a big prop on a big stage until Jesus comes back? Church, what world is he talking about? Well, he's looking at, he's looking at a, a Roman official and saying, yeah, my kingdom is not like your kingdom. Because what is he saying when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? He's admitting he's a king. He's admitting he's a king. He has a kingdom. And guess what? It's made up of physical disciples in a physical world. And then you get to the book of Acts and Jesus, like what most Christians are celebrating today, Easter, right? Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And then his apostles go out and they say that the kingdoms of our, our kingdoms of, of this world have become the kingdom of our God. This world, these worlds, these nations are now Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples, go out into the world and make disciples of who? The nations. Go out into the world. Brother, this idea that Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with the present physical creation 
has no biblical basis whatsoever. It is often an excuse, and sometimes this excuse is just simply inherited as tradition. And so I'm not particularly calling anybody out saying, quit promoting this. I just don't want us to ever have this idea in our mind that Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with this world. It most certainly does. Brethren, He died for it. And He rose again and ascended on high to reclaim it. This is His. What does it say of Him in Colossians? He's actually reconciling all things, the whole world, to Himself. Not just believers. All things. They're all coming back to Him. So that one, an excuse. Second one. We're simply waiting for the Lord to take us away. Now this is kind of tied to the first one, right? If this, if this kingdom of this world is not Jesus' kingdom, has nothing to do with this world, well then really all we're just kind of doing is just waiting around and we're really hoping that, boom, this room will hopefully be filled with just a bunch of clothes and we're all gone, right? We all get raptured. We all get caught up into the sky and we go away to be with the Lord and then God just comes in and judges everything. And church, like I said with the first one, this is often simply because people have inherited this by tradition. They just assume the Bible says this, that their life is built around this idea that all the church is doing is they just they, it's like they got a building that they all get in. There's a you know blowhorn on the outside that says warning, warning, get in the building, get in the building. You know before God takes us all away, and the church is just simply praying that enough people get in so that some people can be saved. And we're just thinking that we're just waiting for God to take us away. That we're just waiting to get out of this place. But church, you remember what? what Jesus says in John 17 about his church about being in the world what does he say about it? Does he, does he pray to the Father in his intercessory prayer and say Lord completely take them out of the world don't leave them there, it's a terrible place you're doing nothing with it keep them, take them out of there, get them out of there he doesn't say that he prays that they would not be of the world but that they would remain in it for the purpose of what? The great harvest is before them, brethren. The great harvest is before them. And it's ripe. The nations are ripe. They're ready. And he wants his disciples to go out and to reap the harvest. That's their task. It's not to leave it. It's to go and fill it and go into it and reap it and see souls come from it. But brethren, listen. That means that our task is not to simply stand by and wait for God to do something. God has done something. You want your Easter sermon today? Jesus Christ rose again on the third day and ascended on high, right? He is risen. What do you say? He is risen indeed. I got it in. Perfect. Right? Now what? Right? That's a great thing to say on a Sunday. The question is, now what? He rose again from the dead. Why? He ascended on high. Why? What's the importance of that? Don't let that become a cute thing you say in church. It has meaning. In church, He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday and ascended 40 days later 
to his father's right hand because he turned to his son and said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He turned to his son and the decree was, ask of me and I will give you what? The nations for your name. Brother, we're not waiting for the Lord to take us away. The Lord has already come and acted. Now he's told the church to go and make disciples. Be concerned with that. And drop the excuse that we're just waiting for God to take us away. He's left us here, brethren. He's left us here for a task. So those two excuses gone. But brethren, here's where, you know, I got a lot of amens on that. And I'm, you know, praise the Lord for that. I hope I, I didn't get a bunch of, oh, you're wrongs. That would be kind of awkward. But here's the third one. Here's the one we are going to have to battle against. I'm going to have to battle against. We don't believe everything you amen. You don't actually believe it. Now, I'm not saying you don't actually believe it in your heart. I'm not, I'm not questioning your genuineness or your intentions or whatever. But brethren, if boots don't hit the ground, does the intention matter? Right? You tell your wife you love her, but you never display it. Right? Valentine's comes around and you don't get anything for her, but you tell her how much you love her. Right? I made that mistake. Sorry. Don't have anything. Right? If there's nothing backing what you're saying... If there's, no, if, there's, if there's no actual work behind the intention, intentions are, are meaningless. I mean, it's, it, it's like what one famous preacher said, intentions have paved the way to hell, right? Good intentions. So brethren, if we don't believe that our labor is working towards something, we don't actually believe that and boots don't hit the ground to do something, then that's an excuse, and at its heart, it's just this. It's unbelief. We don't actually think our labor towards that end or God's promises regarding that end are going to come to pass. And so why even bother? And brethren, I admit to you that it's, it's a hard. I think the hardest thing in all of the Bible is to see the grand promises of God and believe them. Right. If you're unconverted, you're a sinner. And I, I, had a, I had a friend I, I worked with for a long time when me and my wife were in Kentucky. And you know what his biggest objection to the gospel was? It, it wasn't the miraculous. It wasn't the supernatural. It, it wasn't even that Jesus came and died on a cross and then buried and rose again, right? The, the Easter message. You know what it was? I told him murderers could be forgiven. I told him child rapists could be forgiven. I told him the most wicked, heinous sinner, if he repents and believes the gospel can have forgiveness of sins and be made right with God. And that's what he could not swallow because he thought himself better than that. So, brethren, that, that's often what's at the heart of this is we see a grand promise like that. And I'm not saying you deny that, but we see those promises in Scripture. We see Psalm 2. We see Psalm 72, Psalm 110. We see all of these different promises of what God is going to do in and through His church. And we don't believe it. There's just this, there's like this unbelief that just loves to reach its hand out at the last minute and tug us back just a little bit. Will He really? All the nations? Will they all be His? You ever looked at the world before, Christian? Jesus, you ever looked at the world? Alright, that's your heart. That's my heart. But we need to be aware of that kind of excuse. 
of keeping us from engaging on this church. As we read, that was one of our scripture readings. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Our labor is not in vain. It won't be because of the resurrection, because of Easter Sunday. Labor is not in vain, church. It won't be. So don't let any of those things be an excuse for you. Now, where's our basis here in Scripture for why we're going to go out and do this? I've already kind of hinted at it because it just naturally comes out. But you can turn to Acts chapter 2. What's the basis for engaging the world, the culture, politics, every area of life? What would be the thing in your mind that you would stick as, here's why Christians should do this? Right? Because a lot of times you don't hear messages about saying Christians should be culturally engaged or politically engaged. They, they think that's worldly. Right? But there's, there's reasons why. And this first one is going, going to come right out of here in Acts 2, beginning here in verse 29. So look in your Bible, Acts 2, beginning in verse 29. First sermon ever preached here at Pentecost. Christ has now ascended. Here is the result of His ascension. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured this that He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Psalm one ten, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house, listen church, let all the house of Israel, the church, let you know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Brethren, as much as I would love to get in the weeds on some of those other details right there, focus in on the results. He tells the house of Israel at that time, and he tells you, listen, because of this, let everybody know God has made that man, Jesus, Lord. And that just went over us like it's not a big deal. Okay. People say that about people. They call them Lord. What a big deal. I mean, but you don't understand that. Imagine if your translation, this would be really weird because even saying it sounds weird. Imagine your Bible said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both president and the, the head chief of the nation. I mean, that sounds really weird to you because we just don't think of a president that way of like, okay, yeah, he's the highest dude in the land, but I don't have to do whatever he says. But that's the closest we get to that kind of phrase to think he's been made the most supreme authority in the land. And to call him Lord would have been to the Romans and to the Jews of that day to call him what Caesar was calling of himself. It was 
Caesar is Lord in their day, meaning Caesar is God. And guess what? In Rome, you didn't just get to do whatever you want like you do in America. You didn't just drive your chariot around wherever you wanted to go. You didn't, you know, stroll free on the bumpy, you know, roads that they had back then. You didn't just do what you wanted. Caesar said, bow, and you bow. Caesar said, eat, and you ate. And Caesar said, don't eat, and you don't eat. And Caesar says, down with you or up with you, and you went one of two directions. You just don't get it. You don't live in a place like that. But Caesar was Lord. You don't defy Caesar. Caesar says what goes. And he's saying, no. Jesus is Lord. That's the implication, church. He is the sovereign. He is, and I hate to put it this way, but maybe you'll feel a little bit more. He's the dictator. He dictates to you what you are, who you are, and what the world is. There's not, you don't get to come along Jesus and work alongside of him. Jesus is Lord. That's an absolute statement. He is Lord. He is Messiah, the one crucified. And the people of that day understood that. They said, brothers, then what must we do? Because we crucified the Lord of glory. What if you killed the president? <laughs> and you just realize, oh my, I just, I just killed the president. I mean... We don't do the death penalty very often in America, but I'll tell you what's coming your way, and it's not 40 or 50 years in jail. You kill El Presidente, and they're coming after you. Like Your head is slowly coming towards the chopping block. You're done. And here they, they realize, like, we killed the Lord of glory. What, what are we doing? And you know what he says? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Because this one has been exalted to the right hand of God. And you know what? Jesus now has the authority to forgive. He has been vindicated. And if you look to the Lord, you're forgiven. If you bow to the Lord, if you are wise and kiss the Son, forgiveness. And that becomes the basis for the early church's problems. Does the early church later on in Acts get all sorts of accolades and, hey, they're just bringing in this, this guy who's going to bring about world peace. They're such great people. What happens to the church throughout the book of Acts? They're persecuted. You get all the way to, they, they even start preaching to Gentiles. And the Gentiles, people who are not Jews of their day, understand the implications of saying Jesus is Lord. You say Jesus is Lord to people who worship idols and statues and, and all sorts of deities, and they hear Jesus is Lord and they believe Jesus is Lord, what do they start doing with all their stuff? They start throwing their idols away. They start casting off all of their, their pagan worship and their pagan temples and their pagan sacrifices. And who makes money off of that? And who gets rewarded off of that? People who make it. And the whole world starts getting flipped upside down in their day. It even says it over there in Acts. It says that these men are turning the world upside down because they claim that there is a Jesus who is Lord against Caesar. And did they look at them and go, well, that's weird. Who cares? His Lord, not a big deal. The leaders of that city, they said they stood in awe because they understood someone else is claiming authority over Caesar himself. And they're overthrowing even imperial worship. I mean, they understood it. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus rules everything. He rules you. All of you in this room, Jesus rules you. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. I don't care. He rules you.
That's a fact. It's just a reality. Jesus is Lord. He's King. And He rules. But church, here becomes the basis then for our engagement, right? And I want, I want you to hear this too in Philippians because I think it has a little bit more force. Not just in the declaration of who Jesus Christ is, what's going to be the inevitable result of Jesus? If Jesus is Lord, what's going to be the result among people? And here's what Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, beginning here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Christ's obedience to the Father unto death has rewarded him this. God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. He's Lord. He's the Caesar. He's the ruler. So that, for a purpose... His name has been highly exalted, church, for a purpose. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of the Father. Church, our basis is in the fact Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. And then, if the question then becomes to you, if He is Lord over everything, what part of our realm does He not touch with His Lordship? Where does it not extend to? Where does Jesus Christ's rule not reach? Where does His kingship not touch? Brethren, it goes everywhere. If He's Lord over everything... To the point that every knee is going to bow, that means every knee, every person, every image bearer owes Jesus Christ allegiance. Your knee ought to bow because you are not coming to Him in rebellion. You're submitting to Him. That is an act of submission. Of submitting your will and your life and all of who you are to King Jesus and saying, the King dictates who I am. The King dictates what I do. The Lord Jesus dictates the world. And church, that's the basis for our engagement. Jesus Christ's resurrection and exaltation is the basis of His Lordship. And His Lordship means everything under earth and on the earth and in the heavens listens to the command of Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, the stars do it. The planets do it. The skies do it. The, the birds of the air do it. He feeds them. But do you do it? Does every command of Jesus Christ come your way with a, a, a knee bent? Or does it come with a fist tightly clenched? Jesus Christ is Lord. You need to submit to Him. He has been resurrected and exalted to God's right hand, and He has now been made Lord. So church, here's our basis. And then notice that Jesus' commission to us, what we usually 
fly through pretty quick because it just becomes a, 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 a Christian verse that we always turn to all the time. And I get it, right? You turn to a verse all the time, it can become dull. And that's not because the Bible's got an issue, it's because we have an issue. We, we become dull of hearing, and we gotta, we got to sharpen our ears again to hear some of these scriptures, right? Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission being given. Think about that. Acts 2, the Lord Jesus Christ being declared Lord, and now Jesus. Now listen, it doesn't just stop with Jesus being declared Lord. Now it comes to you. Here's what the Lordship of Jesus Christ means to those who bow the knee to Him. Jesus comes to us and He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And what are we to do in making them disciples? We are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, here's where it comes in. Teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded with the promise that this, Christ will be with us always to the end of the age. So church, our, our engagement now is firmly rooted in a text of Scripture. Jesus is Lord, and then He comes to His church and He says, Go therefore. That has implication, right? It means Jesus is Lord. Yes, we can all say abstractly. That means He rules everything. But who cares if it doesn't cause you to do anything? Repeat R.C. Sproul all day if you want. That every maverick mo molecule in the universe says yes to Jesus Christ as Lord, right? It all conforms to Him. But if you don't, then there's a maverick molecule there. And He comes to His church and He says, Go, therefore, disciple the nations. Baptize and teach them. Instruct them in the way. Jesus Christ, is He not Lord over here of Las Vegas, of Nevada, over those senators, over those lawmakers. Church, we have an obligation to go out to them and to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that He extends forgiveness of sins, and we ought to teach them in the way. And I'll tell you this, that means the basis for our engagement is grounded in that, and we ought to tell them, all the kingdoms of the world have now become Jesus Christ. You ought to obey. Amen. Nevada is His. Las Vegas is His. Those senators are His. And they will be His either in submission or in judgment, brethren. Those are the two things awaiting every single person. Revelation eleven fifteen. Just hear the New Testament refrain in this. This is at Revelation eleven fifteen. What is the trumpet sound and the loud voices? It says this, From heaven comes this, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And this is just echoing everything that we hear back into the Old Testament, right? In, in Daniel, you get the same thing. In Daniel chapter 7, In the Ancient of Days, and the one like a son of man who's approaching him. It says that one like a son of man approaches the ancient of days. And what's given to him? A kingdom and a people and nations and tribes and tongues as an inheritance. They all become his. But I want to notice if you've ever read down a little bit further in Daniel 7 about what it continues to say. It's not just that the son of man receives this kingdom. 
He does. He most certainly does. He's given dominion and a kingdom. But all the way down there in verse 27, he's also given a people. And it says this in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole earth shall be given to who? The people of the Most High. The people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. You hear how you're included in that? And that means that that obligation then to go forward then extends to you. It was commanded to you and the kingdom that Christ inherited is also yours. So you're to go out into the kingdom that God has inherited in Jesus Christ and you're to tell people Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And so church, we have this basis for this engagement. And it's in the most simple Christian confession possible. The simplest thing a Christian can say, regardless of how much they know or how much they've studied. And that's this, Jesus is Lord. That simple confession of that ought to be the basis for our engagement and what we ought to do in the world. We ought to bring the gospel into the world to teach and to baptize and to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ among the nations. So church, I hope, I hope you understand. I hope I've convinced you. I hope you believe that that's a real obligation upon our parts because if it is, then we need to start asking the question, well, what are the things we ought to do then? And, and, and does the Bible give us some things that we ought to do in light of this? And I think the Bible does. And here I'm going to give principles, right? I'm not going to be able to draw everything out for you as it relates to this. But if the gospel touches everything, if the lordship of Christ reaches into everything, including the problem that we presented the last time I was able to preach, what are some things that we need to already be doing or begin to do now, in order to do this, how ought we to engage? And the question also is, is there only one way we can engage? Because I'm sure the way that it hits then, and often it gets preached like this too, is, okay, um, you know, we got to do something about this, so everyone get to the street and start preaching, right? And all the moms holding four kids are like, huh? You know, they're like, what do you mean get to the street and start preaching? I can barely keep my kids, you know, two feet next to me. Like, and so we, we got to understand that the obligation that you should rightly feel can come in how you engage in multiple different ways. Not everyone's going to be able to engage in this thing the exact same way. Not everyone's going to be able to go down to the city council or go up all the way to Reno to speak up to you know, state, uh, a state senate committee or whatever the case may be. There's going to be differences in how we can approach this and how we can engage in this. But church, I want to give you at least a few so that you can find at least one, because there's at least one everybody can do in here, and then they begin to do those different things. So here's a couple of practical steps. And this one, I would say, needs to be a cultural piece, I think, inside of our church. And this might be an odd one to start with, but our first step in doing this church is this. We need to be a ruling 
an orderly church. What I mean by ruly is a, a, a very well-kept church. We are a people of order. We are, we are a people of, uh, of, of, of good practice, of, of maintaining ourselves. We're not a wild, crazy, disfigured, rowdy bunch who just fly off the handle at everything that they see, who, who, are, who are not themselves put together, who don't seem like they themselves have a Lord. Right? There's churches like that. They claim Jesus is Lord, but it doesn't look like He's even Lord of that church. That church is in all sorts of messes. It does all sorts of things. But I want us to consider, and I read one of these last week, and I'm going to read the opposite one this week. Not the opposite, but just a, a, a similar one this week. And this is 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to emphasize something this week that I didn't emphasize last week. Because last week, we, when we emphasized Romans 13... 1 Peter chapter 2 addresses the same things. It talks about what is the role of government, pretty much. He, he addresses kings. So here in 1 Peter 2, if you want to look right there at 13, listen to what he says. He says there in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. Right. So he's talking about governmental leaders, governmental authorities. And he's telling them how you ought to submit to them. But in doing so, he also gives a description as to what they ought to be. And last week, or not last week, but the last time, we emphasized all human governments are servants of God. That's what the Bible calls them. They are actually deacons of God. And the way that they serve God is in the function of administering justice. It says they bear a sword. It means they have the power to reward, and they also have the power to punish, and ultimately with that sword to execute. They are to establish justice in the land. If people, you know, if man sheds man's blood, he murders him, the state has a God-given responsibility and duty to administer justice in that area. That's what the Bible says that they ought to do. But I want to make sure we're balanced in this because, listen, I, I, I'm, I become imbalanced on this myself because I think in America we just have that kind of rebellious spirit, you know? So we read about what government ought to do and we go, yeah, 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 government ought to do this. They ought to do this and this. And we always forget what these passages say about what we ought to do. And notice what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, there's a lot of weeds in that text, and I'm not going to address all of them, but suffice it to say, there is some kind of level of obedience and submission that Christians ought to exuberate towards governing authorities. Right? So, church, we should not be a house full of revolutionaries ready at any moment's notice to pick up our rifle and to go fight the government. Right? But we're not to be those kind of people. We're not to be the kind of people who every time the government does this or that or says this or says that, we just always want to respond and take it over. Establish something new. Do this. Do that. Because notice the kind of institutions that Paul is calling Christians to submit themselves to. Emperors. You have one of those. 
You guys have an emperor? I hope not. You don't have one of those. Thank God you don't have an emperor. But he says to them to be subject to them. Right? So I'm not here to define every way in which you ought to be subject to them or not be subject to them. But just to give you the general idea is there is a sense in which you do owe at least some measure of submission unto them to where you are not always bucking at everything that the authorities do. And you got to think about this, church. This, I mean, this gets, this gets hairy. But you think about someone like Daniel. Where did Daniel get taken to? Did he get taken to the United States of America where he had freedom? Where did Daniel get taken to? Babylon. Is Babylon a good name in the Bible? <laughs> Read Revelation. Tell me how great Babylon is. Church, listen. Daniel went to Babylon in judgment and in exile. And God did not tell him to go in with his few Hebrew friends and to throw the place and to make it turn upside down through revolution. But then he told actually be a blessing to that wicked nation. Be a blessing to it. And then he serves right alongside the king. Right? So there's, I mean, listen, church, I feel the tension in just saying it, right? There's some tension there, right? He is told to go into a, a, a very wicked place and to serve there and be submitted unto it. But we know that he didn't fully submit to it, right? This isn't just blind obedience to governing authorities. What does Daniel get in trouble for? Right. He doesn't bow down to the king's statue and then he doesn't listen to the decree of the king and he prays. With window open. Right now, and, and I was talking to Michael about this earlier. Daniel had, this is something Daniel had been doing. The window's been open, right? He's been doing this. He wasn't just like, forget this. Boom, kick the window open and be like, I'm praying, you know, and tell everyone he's about to pray. He wasn't being, you know, uh, he, he wasn't being uh, rowdy in that sense of telling everybody. But have you ever thought, hey, Daniel, all you had to do, bro, was close the window. Close the window and nobody would have known you would have been praying and you would have had no issue with the governing authorities. Why on earth would you have done that? There's tension there, church, of obedience and not, and not obedience, of not submitting, of saying there are things that God would have that we do not give ourselves to the government to, but there is some level of obedience that we do submit ourselves to. And church, I cannot... Begin. I mean, we're talking about 2,000 years of church history, and the church does not have a settled answer on this. So I feel safe in being able to say what I'm saying. But just this, I at least want this general principle in our mind. Church, I want us to be ruly and orderly here at Redeemer. If you get thrown in prison, I don't want the authority to be able to say it's because that's a rowdy, boastful, they just tear things up everywhere they go. I want coals to rain down on them because they threw you in jail unjustly. I want us to be seen as a people who are about promoting peace among other people, about promoting uh, honor amongst everybody, among the king or the president or whoever is over you. I want us to be a ruly and an orderly people, but a people who know that from those verses and from the examples of other people that the government is also not supreme. 
I mean, you obviously don't think that. Y'all are meeting in here with no masks on. Most of you. And if you're wearing one, that's okay. You can wear one. I don't care. But all I'm saying is the government says this is not an okay thing to do right now, and you're doing it. So you obviously, to some extent, don't think the government extends into every area of your life because who is Lord? Jesus is Lord, not the government. And we need to think about that as we think of 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. We need to think about something like Acts chapter 5, right? Because here's Peter, right? Peter who wrote that, Christians just love quoting it, right? Listen, the government said we shouldn't meet or we should meet in really small numbers. We should be socially distanced. We should do all this garbage that doesn't work. And, and we should just obey them because they say to. But then you get Peter who wrote that to submit themselves to governing authorities. And here's Peter, right? Acts chapter 5, 29, he's being brought before the leaders of his day, the Jews, right? He's not necessarily being brought before Gentiles, but he's been hauled off in front of them, and they say, hey, stop this Jesus preaching. Stop talking about him as the Christ. And he's go, okay, governing authorities, God did institute that over him, right? The old covenant has not gone away yet. It's passing. It's not gone away. He could have easily said, you know what, God had put that over me. And I should, I should, maybe I should listen to them. And what does he say to him? It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's his answer. So though Peter writes 1 Peter 2, and in line with Paul in Romans 13 saying, be subject to governing authorities, don't pit Peter against Peter. Don't throw all of your weight into submission to the government or throw all of your weight into bucking at everything the government does and then put the Bible in conflict with itself. Because it's not, brethren. Peter was not a dummy. <laughs> he wrote Scripture. He's not an idiot. He knows his Bible. And he's able to write that in 1 Peter 2. And he's able to do that there in Acts chapter 5. And you go all the way to Acts chapter 12 and you start reading about what Peter's doing. Peter's escaping from jail, right? Why, is he, why would he leave jail? He's put in there by the governing authorities. He was put in there by a proconsul of Caesar himself, and he walked out of a jail cell. Why didn't he look to God and go, God, why'd you open the door, man? I was put here by your authority, Lord. He could have said that. He said, Lord, you don't know, but I'm going to write First Peter too, and you put that authority in my life, and you're wanting me to disobey the authority. You're going to be able to deal with that kind of tension in that text? And church, I want to tie both of these together. We do need to be ruly and orderly in a people who are not shown as bucking at the government every single time. But we also need to be marked as a church that Christ is supreme. He's Lord in this church. And we will not bow or toe to the government because they simply tell us to. We won't do it. Don't do it. Peter didn't do it. The apostles didn't do it. The early church didn't do it. And brethren, their flesh, which still their blood, which cries out from God's altar, right, being thrown to lions, testifies to the fact that they did not do that. They didn't do it. So we got to keep those two together. Ruly and orderly, Christ is Lord. And if that means the world gets turned upside down for the rest of the world, then so be it. But let's be a people who are trying to be promoters of peace and tranquility among other men and let the false accusations come as they come.
Let's let those two things happen. So those are the first two things. Here's a couple of things that everybody can begin to do besides assuming those two principles of this, prayer. And I know that is the most thrown out nonsense that most people just yeah, shake their head to and they never pray. They never do it. They never consider prayer in the fight and engagement against this stuff. But brethren, as I have been able to just think about this for myself, I've been challenged by Nick and by Manny through our own prayer and our own study as your pastors to come under the weight and conviction that if we are going to ever do this stuff, if we are ever going to engage in this stuff, if we do not do it in prayer as a church, we will fall flat on our face. It'll be like that song that we sing, right? That unless God builds the house, that the builders are building in vain. If He doesn't do it for us, church, if He's not with us, and if we're not crying out for God to be with us, who cares what you preach? Who cares what you do? Lots of people have turned worlds upside down, and then their world gets turned upside down. We have got to be a people of prayer. And I want you to hear this in Second Tim or excuse me, 1 Timothy 2 heard it a million times and it just struck me last night as I was reading it and I was writing out notes to it and I was talking to Michael a little bit about this. I had just never really thought how Paul connects prayer with not only how we ought to engage but th that there is a certain result that our prayer ought to bring about for the people that we are praying for. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 2 he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then, he, and then he gets specific. For kings and all who are in high positions. All right. Now it would have been a wild thing to ask Christians to pray at that time. They're being persecuted by those people. These are the people making the shots or calling the shots. They are the chief persecutors of the church. And he tells them, pray for them. First of all, I urge you to make supplication for them, pray for them, make intercession for them, and thanksgiving for all people, including the kings and those who are in high position. And I don't care what candidate you vote for right now, or if you are mad that the current president's in or that the last one was in. If you actually do that with thanksgiving in your heart, Supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position. I probably say this for myself and for all of you. None of us really do that. But hopefully I can motivate you towards that for what he then says. Why? That. So here's, here, here's a clause here explaining why we ought to do that. That we may lead, what, a rowdy, rambunctious, flying off the wall, bucking at authority kind of life? No, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's why you ought to pray that you, that we church, we would lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. And notice that those things will only come about, the peaceful and quiet life, are only going to come about because well, of what verse 3 continues to carry on. He says, this is good. This thing that I'm asking you to do and the result is good. Why? Because it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires what? All people. Right? Don't try to... Don't, don't, don't try to... Uh, 
clarify the all right there. Just take it how it is. It's pleasing in the sight of our God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why you ought to pray for all people and kings and peoples in authority to live a peaceful and quiet life. Because brethren, how often in the world has the gospel flourished when there's been peace? And you may think, and, and listen, this comes in such direct opposition of what we have been told to believe, even by good preachers, even by good theology, where the only thing the church ever wants to uh, admit to is suffering, and by suffering, the gospel and the church flourishes. And brethren, I'm here to tell you that I wholeheartedly believe that. Wholeheartedly believe that. That the church, through suffering and great trials, will always flourish, will always stand strong. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. But church, is that what we ought to desire for our brethren? No. The Bible doesn't tell you to desire that for other Christians. Now if it comes your way, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial. It's for your good. God builds it for your good. But brethren, God doesn't... God didn't design the church to say, man, pray for your brothers to be in persecution. Pray for them to lose family members. Pray for them to lose their status. Pray for them to lose everything in light of the gospel. No, what is Paul's desire? That we can actually live peacefully and quietly. Because, brethren, what other times in the world has the gospel exploded more than in times of peace? Don't believe me? Think about the apostles' own day. You think that would have happened Three centuries before, when nations are coming in and out through the Middle East and the Romans have not established peace in the Roman Empire. There was not peace in the Roman Empire for a long time. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't until Augustus Caesar and Julius Caesar come about and they established a peace in the world at that time that had almost never been known in history. And the gospel explodes. Don't believe me? It's in your Bible. They're going freely and proclaiming the gospel. They're writing and not being stopped for writing. They're going out into synagogues and open areas. The idea is they're, they're going to the Areopagus, the intellectual center of their day, and they're freely proclaiming this thing. And they're not being hushed by the government. Well, in some extent, right? It's not like North Korea where it's like one word, boom, done. There is freedom. And there is peace, and they're able to live quiet and dignified lives until the world starts getting turned upside down by their gospel. But friends, the gospel explodes in that time of relative peace in the Roman Empire. And you think about our history here in America. I mean, Europe and America, the West as we know it, grew to the extent of its Christian influence that we do because of times of peace. And yes, the gospel brought that peace. And then it allowed it to flourish. It's why you know of those men like John Wesley and George Whitfield and all of those great preachers in the Great Awakening. Brethren, there was a time of peace and of praying for people to be saved, intercession being made, especially kings and people in high position. Brethren, we have to pay for that so that we could live peaceful and quiet lives because it's God's good intention that He would save the world. Amen? You say that, He wants to save the world? Wants to save all people. So prayer, brethren. If we're going to engage, we need to engage in prayer. And then we need to engage in the proclamation that I told you about. In Acts 17, 
right? They proclaim the gospel. I'm not going to read all of it, but Acts 17. And what is, what, what's the result? They get brought before the people of the town in Acts 17, and they're furious because they're meddling with their way of life. People are not buying the things they used to buy. They're not engaging in the things they used to engage. And they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here. And they are saying that there is another King Jesus. It's because they're going out and making proclamation. They're telling of the decree. They're hearing what God said to His Son. I've made you Lord and I've given you the nations. Now tell of the decree, brethren. Here's this Jesus Christ and He's Lord. Worship Him. And people started doing it. And the people who did it were furious. Brethren, we've got we to engage in the proclamation. I want the other things to come before the proclamation, but the proclamation has to come with it. We can't be people of prayer and be people who don't do anything. We need to be prayerfully acting. We need to be prayerfully going in the proclaiming. And then we need to do what Matthew 28, what we read in 28, 18 through 20. The Great Commission to us is this, church. We're not to just simply talk about what Jesus has done. We're to disciple nations in a particular way. We're to show them the way. People are going to get saved and we're to disciple them in Christ's way. Right? You, you, that text we read in, in Isaiah, that, that Michael read in Isaiah 42, it says that the coastlands wait for His law. Well, who came and fulfilled the law, and who have the coastlands been waiting for, brethren? Gee, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and His law. Right? In His word, in His teaching. And now we are, are to go then and to take it. They're waiting for it. But you got to go. They're waiting for it. But it doesn't get there by magic. you got to go. We have to go and disciple. We have to go and make this proclamation. Two last things for us so that we can think about this reality. Because church, I, I want you to think of this because I, I'm, you know what? Pastoring has been probably the most humbling thing theologically for me. And these two brothers right here can agree. You think you know a lot. <laughs> As you study and you collect your books, and I have a lot of books, brother. I'm not knocking books. I love, you want to buy me a book? Come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> love me some books. But brother, all those books in the world will not help you figure out all of these problems that we have to address. They will not help establish you in the way. We need to be people of the book. Where is the blessed man blessed in? He meditates on God's law day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night. And it is in that that he prospers in what he does. Then he prospers in the way. So churches, we're thinking about this. One thing I want us to consider is this. Be careful that you judge other brethren in their locations for not doing exactly the way that you do it. Brethren, the things that we can do here in America, we cannot hold our brothers in places like North Korea too. They don't have the ability to do that. But can they still obey those texts? You better believe they can. Jesus Christ's lordship can, can run just as smooth in North Korea as it can here in America. But brethren, we also need to remember this. Don't romanticize the suffering and persecution of the church and act like that is the ideal. Brethren, there is a reality to the Christian life, but there also is an ideal that Scripture holds out to us that we want to attain to. Do we not want to hit like in Isaiah 65? that they no longer pick up their sword and their spear, but they beat them into plowshares and no one hurts anybody on God's holy mountain. Don't we long for that? Isn't that what we want? 
That's what God's gospel and kingdom does. It has that result. We need to remember that. And I know you've heard this as a cheesy statement for real estate, but location matters. And we have to remember that. But brother, where we're at, we have opportunity to do things that are benefits to you because of the gospel, not hindrances. Your freedom here in America is not a hindrance to you being a Christian unless you forget Jesus Christ. But if you remember him, brethren, your freedom is of great benefit wrought by the gospel. Enjoy the fruit of the gospel while we have it, brethren. Enjoy it. You got freedom to go do these things. And then you pray for your brethren in these other places. Because listen, brother, though, though Jesus Christ and his kingdom can flourish in North Korea, just as it can in America, that doesn't make North Korea okay. It doesn't make what they do to the church okay. It doesn't establish it in stone and go, we just want everyone to suffer just like the Christians in North Korea as an ideal. It doesn't make what they do okay. The gospel one day will break through to those wicked men and they will repent or they will perish in the way. And North Korea will have freedom and righteousness and justice established into it. I guarantee it. Because your Bible says it will happen. But brethren, location matters. And the ideal versus the reality matters. There is also in our own land an ideal that we are trying to attain where the reality is just not quite there. And so here's my last thing. Though we need to be principled in our approach, we need to have biblical principles, right? Convictions to stand on. We need the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We need those other things in place. We need to be ruly, orderly. We need to have Christ as supreme to balance us out. We need prayer, proclamation, discipling. We also need to be a people. I'm going to use the P word here, okay? It's a P word. We need to be pragmatic in our approach to this. If you want to be absolute principled, you're going to last five seconds in this fight, brethren. And listen, people who want to make that call, I will not knock another man's servant. Well, not, not Jesus Christ's servant, but brethren, we could go and we could stand one day in front of that abortion clinic and no one's getting through. Praise God that no one's getting through. You know where you're going next? Jail. And brethren, I'm not holding that out as you decide one thing or the other. I'm simply saying we need to think pragmatically like we're in war about how we ought to engage. How do we honor King Jesus and his principles and his rules? How are we the most effective, right? We believe in the sovereignty of God, amen, but that sovereignty comes with it, a pragmatism that God works His sovereignty through. And brethren, if the whole church goes and throws themselves in jail overnight, where's the church going to do? Now we pray, and right, God may just come and just boom and blow it off. I mean, He just may do something. And if that happens, you'll find me just going, yep, that's awesome, praise the Lord. But brethren, that usually doesn't happen. We need to be pragmatists to some degree recognizing our reality is we don't have the ideal before us. How are we going to work towards it? How are we going to work towards it in our location? And church, don't feel bad about using the tools around you to be a pragmatist in our, in our, in our time. You think about what Paul did. Paul didn't just, go, he didn't just go full bore on every single thing he went. What did he do often? He appealed to the fact he was a Roman citizen. He tried to get a standing in front of leaders. He tried to appeal to them. He tried to convince them. He tried to argue with them. But brethren, he never said and never abandoned that Jesus wasn't Lord in doing those different things. Brethren, there's so many different examples we can go through in Scripture to just hold that principle out to us. 
but we need to be somewhat pragmatic in our approach to this. And this means as a church, your pastors and us as a church need to be ready to think critically about this all the time. We cannot become lazy thinkers. We need to think as a church, how can we be most effective in Las Vegas? Because brethren, if you haven't looked around in a town of 2.2 million people, you're outnumbered as Christians. That's okay. So is Gideon. Right? Well, it's okay. But we need to then think, okay, Gideon didn't, he just didn't disobey what God told him to do and charge into battle. He would have failed. He came and he heard God's word, and then he followed action and he won. And brethren, we need to come and we need to say, okay, Lord, we, we need to meditate upon this day and night and hear what God has to say to us as a church. Then we can go into battle. So church, pragmatically, we need, we need to think like that. We need to think it's not all going to be the ideal tomorrow, but that is what we strive for. That's what our convictions are based in. So what can you do right now? What is a positive thing you can do right now? Because you're not going to go change every person's mind tomorrow. One meeting at the city council, unless God comes in and he just dumps his spirit out on that place, is not going to change all the hearts of those men. So what are you going to do out of those few instances that we may get to get in front of kings and of authorities? Well, brethren, you start building up other things that you have control to build right now, right? Families in here with kids, build up your family. What good will it do you to be a proclamation of the gospel among institutions and kings and of people in authority and your family is just running wild with unbelievers? And you're not disciplining your family. You're not cultivating your garden at home. You're allowing boars in the vineyard to come in and run rampant in your house. Brethren, tidy up your home. Men, be men of the home who are ruling and reigning over your home. Women, cultivate godly virtue in your home. You are here to build too. Men will not be the only ones held to account for how they protected and provided for that garden. You're going to be accountable for how you cultivated it. A woman of the home, a woman of her kids, a woman of her husband. Get to building where you can immediately. Your family is the first thing that you can do. Build them up. You singles in here, you have a crazy amount of time. <laughs> I'm telling you what, you don't think it. Trust me, I know some of you work. You're hard workers, you're busy. I'll tell you what, you get four kids and a wife whom I love, okay? I'm just clarifying that, but you just realize my, my minutes and my hours are dwindling, brethren. They are. And the time that you could have to build up yourself and to tend to your own understanding of the word, to be a firmly rooted tree planted by streams of water in God's word, the time that you have, don't waste it. I look back on a few years when I was young, 19, 20, 21, time I wasted. Don't be like that. Think I burned myself out when I was young and I'm burning myself out now with the family for God. But also church, another thing is the church is where God has deposited his light among the nations to be about your church. And I know we say this a lot, but I was really thinking about it the other day is we have obligations towards family and all of these different things. And, you know, we often make time and commitments towards families. And I'm not knocking those things. I go to my parents' house almost every single Thursday and I love it. And the free meal. It's great. <laughs> but I want to go see my parents. My parents were not perfect parents by any stretch of the imagination. 
but they were so godly parents to me, and I want to be around them. But you know what, brethren? You know what I often do, and I know you often do this typically. The church becomes like the thing that can come cut off first to engage in those other things. But brother, what kind, of, what kind of church and cultivating work will we do in God's garden, in God's temple, in God's place that He's put His presence into when the church is always the first thing that gets cut out? When your brethren are in need and they're always the first to get cut off from your help. I mean, I thought about this. Nick's moving into a house, and I don't know if you guys have seen it. It looks better now, but boy, did it not look great a couple weeks ago. And you know what I thought? I need to cut out time of what I usually go to do to visit other people, to hang out with other people. Brethren, this is your family first and foremost. This is the house of God, right? Do we, have we not seen it in like a vision of Jacob? This is the house of God. Here it is. Here's God's steps up towards His presence. Brethren, would you not sacrifice other time to be around, to cultivate? How do you do the thing that Paul tells them to do to honor everyone, honor the emperor, Love the brotherhood. Love them. And brethren, those are not just tag statements. Those are principles Paul is giving to the church. And he says, you honor the king, you honor everyone, and you love the brotherhood. And you don't, brethren, we have got to build this church up. And I'm not talking about just doctrinally great. I know churches who all stand on doctrine because they signed a piece of paper. Who cares? If we don't stand on it because we're not in each other's lives, we're not helping build each other's houses, we're not helping raise each other's kids, we're not involved at all, we're not laying down our time. And I was tired after painting, but you know what? I will get to hang my hat on the fact that I get a little bit of fruit to say, I helped my brother paint his house, and you know what? I have pride in that because God says, you love the brotherhood. And you give yourself to the building of that house, brethren. You give yourself to each other. we got to build that up. We need to be wise. You want to see brothers who won't leave your side? You help them build their house. You help raise their kids. You be at their birthday parties. You help them move. You pick them up when their car breaks down. You do the normal things that we often despise in life with them. And you see how mighty the church of God is when the government then comes after you. Who's going to be standing right next to you? Or when you go up upon that city council and you think you're the only one, like I was at the abortion clinic the other morning, only one standing in their church, and I'm not knocking us as a church, but you know what? I know Manny prayed for me. I know Nick prayed for me. I know you, church, prayed. I know you were thinking about it. I can go in and go do those things, but brethren, if we just are, we're in and out of here, we treat it like a nine to five, we're not involved in each other's lives, all we do is go, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, we all have the same theology, but you know, Never spend any time with anybody in this church. You're not going to stand up there. You're not going to do it. You won't do it. I'll tell you right now, you won't do it. Because I wouldn't do it, brethren. I don't have that kind of courage to stand alone. I don't. I often need the courage and the brave spirit of other men like my brothers here to encourage me to speak up. So church, are we going to be wise? Are we going to be wise? Because Jesus Christ is Lord right now. He's subduing all things now. And we ought to engage. So brother, as we think of SJR 8 being proposed before us, brother, I don't have the plan forward on how we ought to engage in this. We may have already lost the battle. But brother, let's at least go down together in the battle. Let's stand shoulder to shoulder, neck and neck. Let us show the world that the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church. Let's pray.